Every year, at the absolute peak of summer, Artscape graces a few blocks of Baltimore City, Maryland. There's art vendors, food stands, live music, and then there's Gamescape. Game design students from University of Baltimore, as well as indie developers from nearby regions, come to show off their work. I'm Greg Livingston, and I managed to catch six of them for interview. And you'll hear them over the next three episodes of the Commune Podcast. This time, you're in for two games that emphasized exploration. Relic and Canary. Up first, Elijah Fernandez is one of four developers on Relic, an overhead adventure game. Over the course of the game, players explore zones themed after classical elements and earn abilities based on those elements. Without further ado, here is... Uh, Elijah Fernandez, game developer from University of Baltimore, graduating this summer. And he's here tonight to talk about Relic, an overhead action game he's been developing. I wanted to ask Elijah how Relic formed a sense of place. First up, to get at that, how is each room in the world structured? So for the way we kind of structure the overall map in each room is it's kind of divvied up into zones. And if you were to look at kind of the world map we laid out, it would be a cross with corner sections. So it's kind of like a big box. And each kind of zone is reflective of the element that is contained within it. And then the corner zones are reflective of the mixed elements between them. So like if you had on the right was fire and on the top was air, in between them would be kind of the fire and air, which for our game we call overheat, that kind of zone. So that kind of zone is more of a uh, volcanic area that we kind of use to reflect that. Oh, nice. So yeah, so those are, that's how it's kind of laid out. So each of the zones, they kind of, they're usually structured in a way so that uh, when you enter the scene, in, in Unity they're scenes for like the levels is what they're called. Yeah. So the scene that you enter is the same scene that you would exit from. So kind of the way it is specifically, and we did this during the demo at uh, Gamescape, is for the water zone, you kind of enter on the beach from the forest and then you work your way around either of the sides to the bottom and then up the center to where the element is. And then when you go, when you get water, you can swim. And so you just swim in the water out from the middle back to the top to the entrance and you can go back to the starting zone and pick your next path. So you've touched on two major points there with the overall world construction where uh, different elements bleed into each other depending on what scene you're in and also that you've laid out the map so that the player kind of loops back on themselves so that they can kick off their exploration with whatever new element they have. Yeah, um, that was kind of one of the things we wanted to design was we really worked on for the map was making it sort of a fluid... So we were kind of directing the player where to go, but it was a lot more kind of, they were only really in kind of bumpers to where they needed to go. Like they could spend however much time looking around different zones and the mix zones in particular are kind of different in that they can only be entered by having an element that's not native to that area or the one they even needed to enter. So they're kind of things that you might notice that you can't get into and then come back and find later. And that was kind of the thing we were kind of looking for was ways that players could kind of go around and adventure and find their own way through the world, but still have kind of a progression so that they know they're doing the right thing, they're going the right way, they are in fact progressing through the game. That, uh, that sounds like it takes a subtle touch to uh, give the player direction 
without them maybe consciously noticing that they are being directed. Yeah, definitely, definitely can be difficult. And when you, when we do play testing and we see people go the wrong way, it's it's kind of frustrating. Cause you're like, ah, I thought I <laughs> thought I got that, but you can see that it didn't quite work. And so you got to kind of look at why or what happened, and identify what you can do better. But I mean that that's just it's a lot of iteration for those kind of things, and it's it's definitely a challenge, but it's something that can be done. Yeah, if there's one thing I've learned uh, about game development, speaking to, to developers, it's that everything comes down to testing and iteration. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but beyond the overall world construction, I was also curious about each individual scene. So, like, uh, would the layout of a fire scene be different than the layout of an earth scene? Um, yes. And no. They would mostly be the same in the way that the player would progress through them, but the kind of the obstacles they would face going through it would be pretty different, and kind of the way they would get through it is reflective of kind of like what element they are looking for. So kind of the setup for like an earth area would have a lot more kind of narrow passageways because the obstacle in that area is kind of the boulders that are in the way that you kind of use, kind of like in Pokemon with strength, you use the earth element to push them. And so those would be more narrow passageways and there'd be more puzzles in those kind of areas, whereas water is a lot more open. There's just a lot more kind of blocked areas with water and kind of winding paths to kind of go through. So it sounds like you've developed gameplay elements based on the uh, natural elements, like the boulders from Earth and the water from water, and then you've thought about what kind of gameplay challenges those naturally bring up by the essence of their rules and behaviors. Yeah, one of the, as a designer, when I started, one of the like three specific things we were looking for as sort of a way of what we were trying to convey was kind of this natural nature aesthetic and the importance of the elements and kind of the importance of your path through the world. Those are kind of what we wanted to be takeaways sort of from the game. So really designing the areas to be very reflective of the elements and in that kind of way, conveying these kind of ideas indirectly through gameplay is really what we, I specifically was striving as a designer for this game, kind of, yeah. Okay. So it was really, it was really important from the beginning, so it's been kind of in our minds every time we look at a level or we look at kind of what the enemies in a zone are, things like that, we want to remember these things, so if we feel something doesn't really fit, like if we have like too many, like one problem we had kind of was there were a lot of trees that were in the forest area that were kind of really square laid out and like they felt like cave paths. And so we had to take, like that didn't feel very natural to kind of a forest. So we kind of moved them around and randomized them a little bit and kind of made it a little bit less linear in the forest areas because it really shouldn't be in a forest, we felt. That's an interesting reflection that, uh, it almost sounds like you had a forest and you thought, well, if instead of trees, they were, these were cave graphics, it would feel more natural. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Because, yeah, when we were designing out the levels, 
at least very early versions would be very specific paths that we had to go through and we knew where we wanted them to go and kind of added little variations like to make it so there were a little bit of exploration in the areas but some of them just really didn't feel quite right for how that area should feel so we had to think about kind of what that area was i gotcha so you mentioned that certain zones would have unique challenges and uh how did you determine how the enemies would behave based on their habitat? Well, so part of the story of Relic is that um, the relics themselves are actually kind of falling from the sky because there is these two gods in the sky that are fighting and pieces of them come off and fall to the earth and they corrupt it in a way and sort of create these enemies that are there which are just like they were slimes and elementals that we have in the demo right now. And those kind of things are just pieces of the world that have kind of evolved from how these relics affect them. So in the zones, like if it's a place in the zones, there are like a little bit of variety to the enemies, but especially as you get closer to say the water element, the enemies will be increasingly more and more water types and there will be more kind of ref like they came from that area because that's where that kind of hit and collided. So that's, the source of that kind of all these enemies is that element that you're going to get. So what you have in mind is like a, is there like a central area with kind of generic ish enemies? And then you, as you venture closer to an element, the enemies get more and more distinct. Yeah. So in the central kind of area where all the different paths kind of branch off of, there are in the center center, there's no enemies. That's kind of where you start. But um, when you go to the, each of kind of the entrances to the other zones, You'll see, for one, the blocking obstacle. So for water, there will be water. For um, earth, there will be the boulders that you can move. There, for fire, there will be the trees that you need to burn down. And then for um, air, it's the poison gas from coming from the forest that you need to clear with the air element. And so in those areas, you'll see kind of the first taste of what that area has. And I don't have the map in front of me, but say for like what you need to get in the air zone is, or yeah, what you need to get into the area that has the air element is water. You'll see your first couple of air enemies outside of that zone. And then once you enter, there again be a little bit of variation, especially because in the zones, there are more than one element. So like in the air zone, there is also perhaps an earth element somewhere in it, but that one is also gated by a different element. And so near that earth element, there will be a lot more earth enemies. And the hope is that you would notice that and kind of take note, even though you can't get to that area, there are a lot more earth elements, enemies there, which is kind of a trend of where these elements are. So you'll come back when you have what you can, what you need to get into that area. So yeah, it's kind of, there's a little bit of variety around, but especially in the zones with the elements, there's a higher concentration the closer you get to the actual element itself. So it sounds like you've got some uh, some puzzle solving going on there where uh, the player who picks up on the aesthetics will then be able to key into uh, what kind of gameplay they should be seeking or exploring for. Yeah, one of the one of the things we haven't really gotten to but we're kind of talking about is uh near the, like where you get the elements where the kind of the zone bosses are incorporated in their kind of that fight or that kit is something similar so one of the things we had kind of talked about was in the when you get the earth element and then you fight the zone boss 
there would be boulders kind of falling down and you'll see them fall and you'll notice that they block your exit for one because you have to stay in the zone and finish the fight and for two they'll be on the ground around you so it's likely you might hit them with the earth element and you'll notice that they move when you hit them so kind of the hope is that that will get you to recognize how these kind of interact with the world while you're doing these fights and you'll kind of retain that and notice and be able to recognize how they work. You'll also be unable to leave them until you figure it out, but hopefully that'll make it a little bit easier. Yeah, I found uh, in playing adventure games, it can be important that some kind of uh, force from above lets me know the range Mm -hmm. that I have to explore in order to solve the puzzle. You know, if it's too open, then I feel like I have to go back to the beginning of the game and pick up a clue that I missed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that and our artist has also been really good about having kind of different color palettes for, like, um, if you have the the normal kind of cave colors, they're a little bit lighter brown than the kind of boulders that you can move, and all the different interactable earth elements are kind of the same sort of shade of grayish brown, whereas all the other dirt and ground is a different kind of shade. Huh. So there's a lot of uh, subtle aesthetic touches there. Yeah, we we really want it to be so that we don't have to have kind of explanations or tutorials. So we want to use these kind of things through design to make them convey what the player needs to know, which is a lot more difficult, takes a bit more testing, but it's something we kind of wanted for the game. And it's something that kind of reflects upon how we want the game to be, sort of you working your way through this world and finding your own path, which is kind of goes along with the story of the game i got you and uh lastly about setting how did you determine the progression of areas so the way it works is i mentioned that um you need an element to get in the zone and so the way it works is in that zone the element you get is not what you need to get in of course but the way it works is in order to get into the first zone you can use the element you start with because in the beginning you pick one of the four and so let's say you start with fire. When you go into the f- Wait, first so zone... Is that to say that you could start from any of the zones just depending on a choice you make at the beginning? You'll start in the same center area, but your first zone that you're able to enter is determined by what you pick in the beginning. Okay. So, yeah, so basically in the starting zone, the four gates to the side zones that then also link into all of the corner zones and everything that have the base elements. Those four gates are blocked by, depending on the four different elements, the water, the poison gas, the earth, the boulders, I mean, and the uh, trees. And so if you start fire, you will get up to the boulders and you won't be able to find any way through them. You'll get to the water, you won't be able to swim, you can't go past them. You'll get to the uh, poison gas and you'll realize you can't go through it without dying. So then you'll go down and you'll find the trees and you'll be able to burn them down and so then you can progress through there. And once you get in there and once you complete that zone, you'll get one of the other elements that go to another zone. So then you'll go back and you'll say, I got water now, let's go try the water. And then you'll be able to swim through there or you'll get earth and you can go knock the boulders over, which hopefully... Well, you definitely would have had to have figured it out to get back to the start zone, but hopefully you figured that out during your fight and you move the boulders out of the way and you remember those boulders back there look the exact same. Yeah. I can move them now and get into that area. So that's how you kind of progress through those zones. 
and then you can progress into the like the corner zones when you adventure through and that's how you kind of level up the relics and they get stronger and have kind of additional effects those aren't really in right now those are just planned <laughs> but so, um are the corner yeah. zones like the later game yeah those would be kind of the later game zones and the thing is they kind of could potentially open up in the mid game because if you have say two elements you'll be able to get into at least one corner zone it just depends whether you kind of are in the right area and recognize that you could get into that area because it's the same gating system as kind of the four zones except each corner zone has two different gates in two different zones so say one of the corners has on one side fire which goes into the earth area and on the other side air which goes into the water area if you are kind of at the mid game where you have both fire and water or if i explain that right you have fire and water and you're in the air zone you have fire so you could get into that corner zone and kind of try it out even though you're not really in the late game you don't have all the elements you have enough to get in there with uh, with adventure games, I'm always curious about sequence breaking, but it seems like uh, sequence is pretty malleable in Relic. Yeah, definitely. It's it is still very exploration focused, even though we do have a set path that kind of you go through and you complete. But you can kind of deviate off that path if kind of you you say, "Hey, wait, those are the trees I can burn down. Where does this go?" And you'll go off on kind of a tangent, and you'll level up a relic as a reward, and then you'll realize you can't kind of progress anymore. Or you'll get linked back into another area through that corner zone's gate, and you'll kind of break the chain so that you can have kind of a different experience, different ways you play. And that's something we hopefully will happen more often than not, and players can kind of have different experiences while they play. Nice. It'll be interesting to see uh, maybe a speed run finding what the <laughs> fastest path would be. Oh, yeah, definitely. So moving on to abilities, as players progress, they gain new elemental abilities. And I was wondering, how will they determine what ability to use? You've mentioned hard gates, but mm -hmm. are there certain enemies that will suggest powers without requiring them? Most of the enemies, the enemies themselves don't so much require any kind of specific abilities. There is, of course, weaknesses and strengths that you can recognize, but... There isn't really anything that's completely null. We have kind of talked about maybe changing over some of them to kind of be... One suggestion that we kind of are talking about was um, for water enemies, if you hit them with water, they actually gain health rather than losing it. Oh. And that's kind of an interesting path we might be heading down, but right now kind of everything will damage everything just by a matter of how much. And so... Um, Really, what it comes down to for how you decide what you're going to use is up to you, but there is going to be more of an optimal kind of situation to use because we don't want to discourage people from using the abilities they like because it's kind of unavoidable that people will say, oh, I really like, say, the lightning ability. I think it looks cool and it's awesome and I'm going to use it all the time. And that's, that's kind of fine. That's how they want to play. They will recognize that it's not as good in some situations, but if they just want to keep using it, they're kind of free to, but they'll have to kind of, it will kind of suggest to them through the environment, like if they're in the water zone and they have to keep putting water on and off their bar to swim through areas, it might be a little bit tedious. They might end up just leaving it on. And that's how we kind of suggest to them, you should try this new ability 
and swimmer through the area with water on your bar and see what it mixes with because maybe you'll like a mix with that instead and it will be almost as good and you can go back to using the other ones later. It's kind of something we're trying to keep sort of open and that's why we're still kind of, at least I am kind of cautious as to making any using elements against enemies too negative in certain situations. But yeah. it could be an interesting uh, interaction and it's definitely something we're thinking about still going forward. But yeah, the main kind of what ability should I be using here is based off of, for one, the enemies in the zone, what are they weak to? And for two, what do you need to be able to progress through the zone? And hopefully that will make it so that by the end of the game, no one has not tried any of the combinations, even though they may have their favorites. So one thing you mentioned uh, was the bar, which seems pretty key to that idea of getting players to experiment. I was wondering if you could explain the bar. Okay, so the bar... Um... The way it works is you have the four elements, and at a time you can only have three equipped. And so you can equip the three on the W, A, and D keys, and it'll show up in the UI. And we have this kind of double triangle, so the one triangle is your core elements, and then in between them is the reverse triangle, which has the mixes of your elements that you have equipped. So if you have water in your W slot and air in your A slot on Q in between them, will be ice, and that kind of spawns these ice pillars around you. It's probably one of my favorites, but um, yeah, ice is pretty cool. It spawns them around you, and it'll freeze enemies and stuff. It has a kind of unique effect, which is why it's pretty neat. Uh, that's one of the things we try to do with the mixed elements, was make them a little bit more unique and kind of interesting and a lot more powerful. But yeah, in between, you'll have the mixed elements, and so you can keep changing them and seeing all of them just populate right away. And the symbols are pretty good at giving you an idea of what they are, but the best way is just kind of trying them out. And most people will press all the buttons and see what they do. And at least in the demo, they kind of tended towards fire and would stick with that one as their main dealing with enemies. That and Volcano they really liked, but um, they didn't have water in the demo, of course. So <laughs> they didn't really get to try ice. It's my favorite, but they'll know one day. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, fire was just this very simple, clean forward shot almost mm -hmm. just like an arrow and volcano was nice because it took up a large portion of the screen mm -hmm. yeah volcano is a little bit overpowered especially with how we uh we kind of nerfed the cooldowns for the demo so that people could really try them out a little bit more but um that's something i specifically work on a lot because right now there is i have of course spreadsheets and stuff for like the damage for each element including its mixes and stuff so everything is technically balanced however when you throw in the additional effects like the fact that volcano is pretty big and it blocks enemies behind it it becomes a lot more powerful so there are a lot of kind of tweaking that needs to be done still for those but uh yeah so it's it actually sounds pretty nice that players would get to eventually learn abilities for one just because they earn them after clearing a zone so they have uh, they've already digested the previous weapon and also that they're based off of meaningful symbols so that you know i can imagine water and air well that's probably ice so it kind of mm -hmm. the aesthetic aspect of it makes sense as well yeah the one that people don't really get until i explain it is um earth and air <laughs> because that one makes lightning which conceptually was air to earth that's lightning 
But uh, for most people there, oh, wouldn't that be something a little bit different? But we kind of like lightning. It was an element that we thought we would want in, and that was kind of where it fit, and it kind of made sense. So we we stuck it there, and we're still considering maybe if we want to make it kind of its own element. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of the only one that's a little bit off of it. But for the most part, I feel like they all make pretty good sense, and people kind of got it when we were showing them the demo. Okay. And you also kind of covered this before, but it sounded like there was some sense of a progression of abilities where what you get in one zone would unlock the next zone. Um, yeah. Um, actually, wait. Yeah, you did exactly cover that. Yeah, the main <laughs> determination is, is, yeah, the progression which starts at the beginning with which one they pick. So that determines what they get second, third, and fourth, and that determines what kind of corner zones they'll be able to get into, and so that, it all kind of starts with that first choice, which is, it doesn't really, right now in the demo, it's not very impactful, especially because we give you access to a few additional elements as soon as you start. But um, that's a choice we kind of want to be really impactful, and we're kind of working on the first moments of the game as being kind of a big, big deal, kind of a big event, which in the story is kind of your birth. Because in the story, um, the main character, who we call Eve, but she's unnamed for the most part, is a relic that's fallen from the sky and you're given life and you have to kind of reunite all the elements kind of story. But um, so that you pick what you are essentially in the beginning. And so we're, we're working on making that feel really important and kind of impactful and it influences your whole game. And that's hopefully something you might notice as you play is that, wow, the choice I made determines where I go. It determines what order I get things. So... It's kind of a big event that we want to make a lot more powerful, and that's something we're working on designing a little bit more. Okay. Sounds like it, it almost imbues you with a sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely... That would be a good summary for what we're trying to do with that. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for discussing some of the aspects of Relic with us. Uh, before sure. we part, though, I wanted to ask, when it comes to game design, which is more important? The game in itself? The intention of the developer? or the experience of the player? I think that really what's important is striking kind of a balance between the three. And I think the mark of a well-designed game, there are, of course, situations where it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult to kind of balance those. But the mark of a good well-designed game is one that can effectively demonstrate its intentions without becoming a burden on the player. So it is very important not to interrupt the experience of the player, and that's probably what I would put above everything else, is will the player be able to work their way through this? Will they actually enjoy the experience? But that comes down to, if they don't enjoy the experience, they won't have any real takeaway other than that game sucked, or the game itself will be kind of really poorly, well, poorly... Yeah, poorly reflected on the player. Yeah, poorly received, poorly reflected on the player. And so being stuck in a choice between those is definitely a reality because of budget and time. And I feel like that's why a lot of kind of games fall into the tutorial is because really, do you want to spend like four levels of your game introducing the mechanics of the game and having the player learn them in controlled environments? Or do you just want to get them through it so that then they can jump into the story and the real meaty bits of the game that you want them to experience? And that's that's a reasonable thing to do. And I mean, budget and time are realities for all designers, and it's definitely something that's true. 
But um, I feel most of the time when there isn't a balance of those, it comes back to that mainly. But um, there could have been a better way. If you have a tutorial that just says these are weapons or these are elements, Earth will move the boulders. You, we could just put that like on the screen. It could tell the player that, and we wouldn't have to kind of incorporate it into the boss fights. We wouldn't have to have the separate color palettes. We could just explain to them that that's how it works. But I feel it reflects a lot better on the game of what we're trying to do, for one, if they learn it themselves. And for two, I feel like it's a lot more enjoyable for the player if they learn that kind of thing themselves because they'll be like, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. I got that. And they got it on their own. Nobody told them. They learned that. So it's a lot, it's a lot more enjoyable. And teaching players to play your game is really refined art. And it's definitely difficult. And it takes a lot of time. And it, dedicating like whole levels of our game to teaching players things and having minimal amounts of enemies so that they, under, they can get grasp first on the movement and how to kind of shoot their first element is really important to us. And it's to kind of drive that balance between what are we trying to get them to learn? What do we want them to take away from this experience? And how can they have an enjoyable time while doing that? So I feel like it's definitely, you got to get all three if you want truly great game, but it's difficult and sometimes you got to take shortcuts. <laughs> That's definitely a reality of game design. It's a, an interesting point you make about tutorials because you mentioned that the enjoyment might be greater because the player has a personal sense of satisfaction, but I can definitely recall times where an explicit tutorial made something harder to learn because raw text just doesn't stick in my memory as well as a learned experience. Yeah, I definitely, it's definitely, uh, I mean, that's something you can experience and learn playing games yourself or like studying game design. (laughs) (laughs) You can realize that people have a lot more of retention and that's something that personally I've, I've studied quite a bit on for like education gaming, looking at how people learn and how games can be really effective for learning because of that kind of text itself you can read it but then you can forget it but a whole experience auditory visual and can't really get taste but audio (laughs) visual visual and sound and everything is a lot more of an experience that you'll remember and there are a lot more ways you can remember it so uh think of like uh if you have a smell that you associate with a time in your life you're a lot more likely to remember that time when you smell that smell so those kind of things really make make the way you learn and retention for the things you learn a lot stronger. So it's something that you'll learn in game design and is something you can really put into practice and see work really well. Nice. Well, thank you for speaking with me tonight. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been pretty good. Be sure to check out the Baltimore Indie Game Seminar, a convention for indie devs in Baltimore, Maryland. That interview drew inspiration from a few different podcasts. First, our discussion of setting reflects on yourself's take on Terranigma, which pondered the relationship between room design, maze layout, and type of place portrayed. That was episode 26. Next, it parallels the time we discussed weapons in Ranger X, since both discussions consider how players earn and appropriately use weapons, both based on stage design. That was episode 40. Finally, 
Relic's combination weapon system contrasts against Shatterhand's. They both offer complicated combination weapon systems, but Shatterhand asks the player to put together abstract Greek letters while Relic gives weapons identifiable elements. That was episode 23. Next, we'll hear from the developers of Canary, a game where players navigate poorly lit dungeons using a flashlight that runs on limited batteries. How does the player balance exploration for resources with moving ahead? And those developers are... Craig Stevenson, I'm a game designer for Pixelbot Games, and we're working on our game Canary. And I'm Rob Hafey, I'm also with Pixelbot Games, and I'm doing the programming for Canary. Nice. Glad to meet you. Um, so Canary is this uh, survival roguelike sort of thing where you travel through really dark dungeons, you don't have a lot of light to see by, and uh, you go down floor by floor trying to avoid enemies. And one of the things that really struck me about the demo at Gamescape was how dark the screen is, and uh, you're really dependent on that flashlight and on that uh, radar scope. So I wanted to ask, how did you decide how much to show the player? Um, it's it's actually kind of interesting. The uh, the canary before there was canary, there was this smaller um, flash game that I built a few years back. That was sort of like a, a game jam kind of game, and it was um, the the main concept of light and dark was was sort of like the focus or the challenge. Like how do you handle um, like a resource that is running out like in an in an active game like an action game as opposed to like a um like a real time strategy game or something like that and so actually in that game you the distance that your light the cone of your light controlled your entire visibility of of the scene so as your light beam went down the sphere of darkness um would increase as well so actually in in canary it's a little bit different with it switching from a 2D uh, to a 3D environment and, and sort of like playing with the way light reacts and we have like sort of a larger cone that sort of stays stationary um, and that was sort of just came out of testing as we found um, people who would play the game were surprisingly well maybe not surprisingly but they were certainly more cautious as they played um, most of the level takes place as you mentioned in a dark void and there's just a small amount of visibility and people were very afraid to take the next step um, and so sort of after testing and, and, and giving people a light that stayed on as opposed to the original Flash game, that was much, much difficult, uh, much harder than what we're doing now, um, made it so that people were a little bit less afraid to keep playing, so to speak, <laughs> uh, or at least afraid to, to risk losing a life. So you gave players enough to see by and so that they feel comfortable to venture forward. But then uh, I guess the opposite side of that would be... Um, what is the point of limiting the player's uh, sight? Sure. Well, it's it's really to tie in the mechanic of um, of the resource management. Um, so everything that you do in the game takes um, an amount of energy, including using your light um, over time. And, so, and, and as you mentioned, the sonar ability, which is super important to players because it is the one thing that gives them visibility uh, a little bit wider in the dark and so by giving them um by by making it as dark and as as low visibility as we have it, it does create that tension that you have um and when you get bits of light from things like the plants and the reeds that are coming up out of the um basalt rocks you it, it 
you get a little bit of a reprieve from the complete darkness. Um, so it's really to build tension and to create um, that that sense of danger all around you and uh, and the unknown. Um, but it also helps with exploration too. Um, so because you can't see what's coming out in front of you, it's it's interesting to find out what's over that ledge if you take a path one way or another. Um, at least that's the way I see it. Okay. It's interesting in that perspective then that uh, oftentimes in roguelikes or survival horror, uh, resource management comes down to uh, a number in a menu somewhere, like how many bullets are left in my gun or how many health packs I have. And uh, in Canary, you've mapped that sense of resource management to an actual space that I can see on the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... That, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the idea. And I mean, and it, the way that we've set it up, at least um, our, our goal with it is to sort of support multiple play styles. So um, I've seen some players who, when they play they'll turn the headlamp on, for instance, which is just a, a, which is constantly burning down units of energy as it's on. Um, and they'll spin the light around, almost like a, the way a, a police siren or police lights would work. And they'll it, give themselves this constant strobe of visibility, which is actually a really interesting technique that I hadn't seen before. But when you do something like that, you get your visibility back, but you burn through all of your resources. And um, in our game, there's these energy crystals that are sort of pickups that, allow, that you can mine with your light to sort of regain some of that energy. But if you spent too much early on, then you don't have that ability later on. You sort of can run yourself into this situation where you've, you're all out of energy because you've, you've burned up too much. So um, some players who like want to speed run through something like this um, can do so if they're, if they're careful, <laughs> um, if they're not running their light all the time, cause they'll have enough energy to make it all the way through. But otherwise they, um, you know, they'll burn up pretty quick and they won't get very far. Yeah, I, I think that also, you know, the, the concept of, of using energy for everything, that, that kind of evolved as we let more people play it. And as we experimented with playing it ourselves, I mean, it was very interesting, you know, to tie all the elements together. And, and I, I think you agree, Craig, it wasn't necessarily part of the complete design from the, from the beginning to include energy in everything. Right, so, right. Um, and so that it was, it's been a nice evolution of, of game design, and I think it, it ties everything together to force the player to think about everything they do and use. Of course, it's going to make it a little more challenging to tune the levels, but um, you know, um, I, I really like that that concept of you know. So anyway, yeah, that's a a neat point that um, there's this abstract system in the background that rules over everything and so how much you use your light um it influences how much you can use all of your other items um and keeps you from feeling like uh honestly i really just think of uh, banjo kazooie and whenever you would pick up an item there would be like a, a laundry list of things on the left hand side of the screen and it just felt like you had a bunch of random stuff mm-hmm mm-hmm um, so Craig, you kind of started to touch on this and I wanted to get into it more. Uh, how does a player decide where to explore and where not to explore? Um, right, right now. So, um, just to sort of give a little bit of information on our progress, um, we, we've sort of been working on it for quite a while. And as Rob 
um, alluded to, it's we've, we've iterated a couple times. Um, and, and right now what we have is a concept of um, the, the plan to essentially have um, handcrafted levels, which mostly consist of linear path um, environments um, that are mixed in with procedurally generated environments, which is sort of like the next step we're about to embark on. Um, so, Wait, so when you say mixed in with, is it like every other floor would be procedural or? Yeah. So the concept that we're playing with now, then, and, and this is still up in the air, so it's subject to change. But, um, what, what we, what we'd like to do is essentially have, um, handcrafted levels that will help us tell a story, um, that'll pull the player through, um, and, and actually add little bits of narrative in, um, that are intermixed with the procedural levels. So essentially what you're saying yeah you'd, you'd have a static layer or an elevation is what we we tend to refer it to that um includes you know uh six or eight different room engagements that are handcrafted and then you'd go through a series of elevations that were procedurally set up where the rooms change as you go through and then um your progress would trigger the next next story layer is is essentially the idea um but as, as far as your question goes, so right now the, the, the story are, are more linear. They're sort of like one exit out. Um, but the design itself is to encourage people to travel down multiple branches. So the way we have our, our system set up and the way Rob's created um, the level editor and, and uh, the procedural generation, um, as far as we have it now, is that we can create you know a, a chamber or a room and then sort of like branch, uh, uh, align the branches um, however we want. So if we need to connect a room as like a sub room off of another, or we need to have branching hallways or we need to have changes in elevation. Um, the system can do that. And it's, it's a procedural setup, um, with us, with, you know, a series of handles for us to tweak. Um, but I don't know if Rob, if you want to talk more about the way that works, but the, the, as far as from the player perspective goes, um, we want to encourage exploration that takes you down different paths. And we have rooms that are set up that, are challenge you, challenging you either as a, as a platforming challenge or as a combat challenge, as well as things like vistas that are going to um, show off the world and, and give you a sense of navigation, as well as treasure rooms where you'll have the ability to upgrade, find upgrades from your character and, and you know, mine, mine the crystals that will you know, keep you going. Yeah, so that's part of the balance is, is um, being able to you know, design the level such that maybe the you know, the, the treasure room is difficult to get to, for instance. So you would have to, number one, find it, and then you'd have to be able to, you know, um, you know conquer the enemies to, in order to get there. So that would definitely be part of, uh, you know, a critical component in the game to be able to collect enough energy to continue. So um, by tying the energy into having to explore, then that as another element that's interesting from the game design in, in that, um, it's not that you're just battling endless ways of enemies, but you actually have to manage your resources at the same time. So, um, anyway. Okay. So, could there be a hypothetical scenario where I reach the end of the floor, but I decide to backtrack and keep exploring for a treasure room or something like that? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so there, there's there's freedom in, in the way that we have the system set up that you can sort of tree branch the design um and, and you can have dead ends and you can have um where you where you would need to backtrack there's certainly nothing that would prevent that from being set up um yeah yeah and the, and the system now um 
I guess in the current iteration, we're we're hoping to have, um, you know, very nicely well lit, you know, rooms that are handcrafted, um, again, procedurally connected with in a random way with with other rooms in a structure. So basically, Craig would be able to um, kind of decide you know, which rooms would be included on a particular elevation. But every time you went into that elevation, um, you may find the rooms in a different position or, you know, their their elevation and, and Y is, is changed. They're, they're branching in X and Z, you know. So uh, you really don't know where anything's going to end up, um, you know, in the second time through. So that can make it, you know, more interesting. Um, we can also randomize the rooms, um, you know, on that particular elevation as well. So um, we're playing around with all of these ideas to, you know, to get the best um, game balance. Okay. Yeah, and that, that ties into, like, the typical, like, roguelike setup where, where really what the player is mastering is they're, um, they're, they're getting better at um, platforming and they're getting better at combat or the defensive combat that we have. And so you, you, you can't memorize the room. You can't necessarily jump this gap every time when you walk in because that gap may not be there the next time you're there. But you can get better at dealing with spiders that explode and don't run from you or lampreys that jump out of the floor and try to eat you. Um, the parts that I love about roguelikes, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, then uh, there must be some way to balance... Uh, how often enemies versus resources appear and how much space you would have to uh, explore and to bump into both camps. Yeah. I mean, that's right now we're in the experimental stage, I guess, um, in that, um, you know, the, the, the nav system that we're using, um, basically a star, um, you know, it has some limitations. And so um, there's, there's, Craig's, you know, um, you know, interest in having this ginormous, ginormous world that goes on forever, <laughs> and then, then the limitations of actually how much we can load into the scene um, and, and render it at any one time, which is, I think, a very typical problem. So we kind of always battle back and forth on that. But as far as you know, resource uh, management um, for a particular level. I mean, that really comes down to like a, a more of a game design balance, I think, you know, meaning that, um, you know, that's where it's going to get tricky to make sure that we have the right amount of energy, you know, overall, um, you know, in the in the scene. So, for instance, if we had uh, fixed rooms that, you know, many maybe there are many of them, but each one of them has a certain amount of resource or a certain amount of enemy. Um, I can easily guarantee that <clears throat> for any one particular level, you know, you might encounter, um, you know, three or four enemy factories and then this many um, power-up crystals and this many, you know, alien um, grass power-ups. And, you know, so, you know, it's very easy to, to manage uh, the, like the distribution, but, um it's more, I think the more difficult part is just, you know, tuning it so it, it plays well on, you know, when you're generating a procedural level. So um, we're still working on that, but um, that's kind of the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right. Lots and lots of play testing. <laughs> yes. 
and, and it's good feedback, um, you know, going to um, to show the game, uh, sitting down with players and and really finding out that, you know, well, they really don't understand, you know, what we're trying to convey. And so we need to, you know, adapt the, maybe the tutorial or the design um, to, you know, have them let them have a better experience. So that's why it's, it was it was nice going to that, that show, this live show. Yeah. yeah, we yeah, got I mean, a lot of feedback. Yeah, that's been sort of like the best thing um, that that we've done so far. I mean, we we showed Canary a while back at uh, the Video Gamers United show that was in DC. I think um, like was that months ago um, or last year even. And that that when we get an opportunity to sort of show the demo to people and and get their feedback and see what see how they play, um, we just get so much more information out of what we're doing and and what's working, what's not, what needs to be tweaked, and um, that's sort of like our our own little play test sessions at these shows as well as a good chance to get the word out about what we're doing. Yeah. I'm sure uh, play testing must be, you know, awfully important in all kinds of game development, but it strikes me as particularly relevant to a procedural generation where communicating to the player operates on a much more like abstract level Right. Rather than someone you can, something you can uh, explicitly design. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think when you look at some of the great examples of, of roguelikes, um, it's it's it's. I, I can't imagine the amount of hours that have gone into making a lot of those and the balance that goes into them. And and sometimes you still have mistakes. I mean, like I think about when I first started playing, like Spelunky, for instance, um, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, they do such a nice job of. It, uh, ushering you in by giving you those three static levels um, before you start, oh. so you understand the mechanics a little bit. Um, like your first rooms, you're you know you're not playing as you; you're playing as this character who's telling the story of how they've they've fallen into this mine that has um, sort of like warped time and space to to repeat itself. Um, which which is a great way, you know, and it's a little bit forgiving if you die. You know, you can restart at the. Um, I think you have like three hearts or something like that. And you can, you can continue to play through and, and that really helps to learn. Okay. Like you get your first enter, enemy encounter and you get, you learn how to use your whip. You learn how to use your rope and things like that. And that's sort of the way to usher you in. But then once, once you're past that and you're actually in the full game of Spelunky, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, it can, it can vary greatly in difficulty just because of that. And I think that's something that's, that's sort of the fun challenge for the type of player who loves, um, the kind of game that makes you want to throw the controller, <laughs> um, but uh, can also make people run away. So I, th- I think it, it you sort of narrow your audience a little bit um, when when you go after mechanics like roguelikes. So based on that, actually, uh, what kind of knowledge would the player have upon entering um, a procedurally generated area? I mean, I think our, our goal could because we haven't built our tutorial yet, um, really. Um, is is sort of to answer that in a similar way, at least for me. Um, that's the way Spelunky did it, and, and that's sort of to like introduce in a safe um, environment. You know that your light's important, energy management's important. Um, everything that you do takes energy. Uh, teaching those those basic rules of the world, and and then sort of um, safely introduce them to their first enemy kind of thing. Um, because other than other than that, it's it's sort of you know, it, it feels unfair if you don't know those yeah. things, you know, because it's like and, and we know that from ourselves because obviously we're internally 
playing through this. So it's like, oh yeah, we know this, we know this, we know this. And then to watch someone new play with it and they're like, and I'm just like, well, why aren't they, why aren't they running? Like there's no way they're going to make that jump. Why don't they run? And it's like, you know it before they even get close to the ledge. And it's just like, oh, you, but you've got so far and I want to tell them, but I don't because I need them to like, you know, do what they want to do. Right. So I can, I, I, I go ahead and tell them. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> Because I'm the nice guy. Okay. Yeah, apparently, Rob's the nice guy. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, well, obviously. You know, that's a huge learning point for me. Because it's like, okay, we need to focus on um, these little things that are obviously important. And it's like, duh, well, of course. But we've been, you know, we've had our heads in the nuts and bolts and not the top-level stuff because we've been working on it for so long. Um, so it was interesting, It was interesting too, at Gamescape, um, you know, telling, you know, trying to teach, like, 100 different people how to play in like two or three minutes. Um, that really was the guide that we need to, to have in the tutorial. Yeah. You know, there's not really that many things, but, but every, all of those things need to com- be conveyed. Um, and hopefully in a clever way. I mean, not, we want to try to avoid, you know, having it be like in your face too much, you know, yeah. like they, there is yeah. some exploration, exploration, but, um, you know, so that's that's what we want to work on a kind of a interesting um, tutorial um, teaching process. Um, so, anyway. Okay. It almost sounds like uh, maybe your guideline is to introduce all of the elements that the player might encounter, and then say you're going to encounter all these in a random arrangement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. that's like, and, and Rob's being really nice by not throwing me under a bus but like my huge pet peeve when it comes to games is like the the blatant system layer over top of the game which some some players could care less right because what's important is is the game but like to me i can't stand it when i get a pop-up that's like here you're gonna need to do this now I'm just <laughs> like n- no i don't i don't want to read that sheet of information that will make it so that i can play because this isn't a board game you know i want to experience it um and and so that's and that's really hard to do. You know, it's not that um, uh, that it, it it's just it's a difficult thing. Like that first fifteen minutes or ten minutes of anyone playing a game, it's like you're you're trying to get your bearings of okay, what is this about? What am I supposed to do? What do they want me to do? What do I want to do? How do I do it? And and that part is tough to package into a nice, um, entertaining. It really is the right word um, way. And I think for us, it's. The attempt is to try and do it through story and introducing the character and why you're there and what's your motivation and then sort of um, letting that unfold so you knew exactly, you know, what to do because you find out who you are and what you're there for. Right. What you have to do makes more sense if you know the reason why. Right. Right. I actually, uh, personally, like, I don't care about the fiction of games at all, but mm-hmm. I also find um, I just learn really poorly from text yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most people do. Um, you know, Craig and I uh, run into that problem in our day job, you know, all the time because people just don't read anything. And yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and including me, <laughs> I don't even, yeah. I, I don't even, I don't even even read Craig's game design documents. So yeah, which, which is most annoying to him because, yeah. but, but I love it to sit and talk about it. So <laughs> it's, it's it's little fun challenges like that. <laughs> so it makes it so great. <laughs> yeah, maybe if the uh, game design document were uh, 
displayed in a playable tutorial. Exactly. Yeah, see, there you go. Then I, then I might actually read it. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, become better programmer. That's on my yeah. list of things to do, Rob. <laughs> I'll program the design docs. <laughs> and maybe become a better game designer. Isn't that scary? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, Craig and I argue about game design um, just about every day for like probably an hour a day. Like, no, that'll never work. And then we argue and argue and argue, which I think ultimately makes things better, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's good when you don't have an echo chamber and you have someone to challenge your opinions. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So also in the on the topic of exploration, um, I wanted to hit on how combat was relevant to exploration. And I actually think, Craig, you mentioned this to me at Gamescape that uh, you envisioned Canary as having defensive combat, and I was wondering if you could explain that. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, basically, the in the game itself, um, you play as Lumen, which is a light utility bot. And in the, the, con the, the concept of the game is, you know, we're set in the future, and we're mining uh, asteroids, and um, we've used up all of Earth's natural resources, and so we use human pilots to control remote control robots who then do the mining for us and in our uh demo that you got to play lumen has landed on this planet where uh, a ship a mining ship's crash landed and so you control the little robot that has the light and um in our world it's a subterranean environment so all the alien life that exists exists underground inside these caves and they've never seen the light of day and you happen to be a little light robot and um, so that's beneficial to you because everyone's afraid of your light. And in the game, you basically, uh, we, have, we have dual stick controls. So your robot's moving with the left and your light can be moved with your right. Um, and because it's a top-down world, that's beneficial because you have enemies that can come at you from any, any side. Um, and you sort of herd your light or herd the enemies with your light um, into, I guess you could call them hazards. Most of the world exists with a void around you. And if you can get them off of the platform you're on, you're kind of safe. Or if you can uh, herd them into pits of lava or water, anything to get them away from you is sort of how you combat them. There's not like an active gun that you can shoot. Um, it's, I, you know, and I think for us that that sort of is one of the things that really sets the game apart is, is that there is no bazooka button to blow everything up. You can't nuke anything. Um, and it's it's something I still advocate for because to me I like it. I think it's actually more challenging. Um, people look at it and they say, "Oh, this looks pretty simple." And then when they try it, uh, it, it does present more of a challenge to um, to do stuff like that to to, to introduce uh, like a herding mechanic in the AI um, as opposed to just pointing a gun and shooting at them from a distance and you know killing them all. Um, but that's that's sort of basically in a nutshell, what the defensive combat is about. Um, and for me, it creates a lot of fun level design um, opportunities because I, I think of every room and chamber uh, a new way to sort of challenge the player to use their light in an intelligent way. So you're not just running in and it's like, bug there, shoot, bug there, shoot, bug there, shoot. It's like, okay, I'm in a dark room. I've got three of these things following me. One of them isn't afraid of my light and will blow me up if it gets too close. I need to find the pit before they all eat me and my battery's about to go out. Like, 
and and that to me is a, is a stressful situation that I want to be able to put the player in and have them try and find the safe spot to stop and think, maybe throw their sonar out and figure out where that pit is, or go over to a corner and explore. And you know, is it on the left side? Is it on the right side? I'm not really sure. Okay, now I need to divide and conquer. I can drop down a flare. It'll create this sphere of light around me as a protection, um, and give me a moment to pull. You know, to separate the enemies and divide and conquer. That's how, at least, I think of <laughs> the way the way the rooms work, um, and that that's sort of the experience that I'm trying to create uh, with the rooms in there. And I think that that that's something a little bit different than than people have seen before. So, exploration comes to bear in uh, having to find methods of killing your enemies. You won't necessarily see where pits are, but also that. Um, because you can herd enemies, you could potentially herd them into some place you want to get to, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so you have like that dual challenge of um, where's my safe place, where's my exit, but where's the place that will either pen these guys up or, or get them away from me or you know throw them off, off the edge, so to speak. Um, yeah, and then and make sure before you get to that, that room or place where these enemies are that you have enough energy, that you've actually yeah. done... The necessary exploring to find the energy you need so um that adds yet another level of tension i think right it's that idea that uh energy is relevant to everything right yeah so we're even debating whether you know you can extract the energy from an enemy that you end up pushing off the cliff or or, or burning, you know, so to speak, with your, you know, some of the spiders, the firebugs you can actually burn, you know, whether you can collect the energy from them. So it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a game design issue. You know, it's a story design, a story issue, really, right? Because uh, programming is easy, but it's a question <laughs> of what, what works for the story. Yeah. So, so that's and the game, and the gameplay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Canary seems. Uh, really interesting so far. Before we go, I wanted to ask uh, more of a conceptual question that I like to run by everybody individually. So, uh, Craig, when it comes to game design, not necessarily in terms of Canary, but uh, just discussing video games in general, mm -hmm. uh, what's more important, the game in itself, the intention of the developer, or the experience of the player? Huh. That is an interesting question. Um... I, I guess I would say, I would guess I would. I, I hate to cop out, but um, I feel like all three of them are really, really important. Um, I think there's probably some weight to the experience of the player because in the end, we're creating a medium that is to be consumed by players, and and the goal is really to make our players happy. Um, so I think that's probably the highest weight. But at the same time, um, especially when you look at independent development, you you definitely feel like they're, the group of people that created the product are, were trying to give you an experience. At least that's the way I see it from the development side. Um, you know, when I play these games, I think about the choices that the designer made uh, or the developers made um, because they wanted you to experience something that, that came out of their heads uh, that they worked really, really hard on and cared a lot about. So I think it's really important, too, what the developer uh, wanted. Um, and, and yeah, and, and in that case, the game too. I mean, it, it it's sort of um, you know, to me, when I look at games, um, or the game, I, what I should say is the games I like to play the most are games that sort of surprise me, um, because I I don't necessarily need to play the same game twice. 
Um, and when someone's trying to do something completely different or tweak a particular aspect of a genre, um, that's when they really stand out to me. So in that aspect, the game's also important <laughs> because what is it, do- what is it doing to it advance, you know, the genre that it comes from, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry, but that was like all three of those. I wasn't really picking one. No, well that counts. <laughs> um, and Rob, which would you consider more important? Um, I, actually, I think the, the player experience is, is probably the most important to me. Um, and, and actually what's really most important to me is that I actually enjoy playing it <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, and, you know, and I think that if I, um, you know, we, we put elements in the game that we both like and we argue about what we like and what should be there. And so, you know, I think it's really, the economy is really important. Plus, you know, from a programming point of view, it's, it's interesting, you know, to keep track of everything and, you know, make it a, an important issue. And I think that if, if the game has a little more meat to it and there's like this separate economy that you have to pay attention to, plus you have the sort of arcadey, um, um, you know, direction of having to hurt enemies and you're running around and jumping and, you know, platforming. And so, you know, it, it's dynamic and it's fun and it has an economy. So, but, but in the end, you know, I enjoy it when somebody can sit down and, and play it. So I would, I would say that, you know, it's for the player, um, you know, more than it is for me. Um, so I, I just want it to be fun. So, uh, okay. Yeah, I think, I think actually there of that, that reminds me of a good point. Like, um, we one thing I did, we didn't really touch on was that we started to develop um, a whole second mode of the game, you could, you could so to speak, and that really was born out of Rob's love for the games that he plays. Um, whereas I wanted this sort of like um, story experience. I wanted to, to tell a story in an, in a, a game that used procedural mechanics, which I hadn't really seen a whole lot of. Um, Rob really loved like the arcade aspect of playing and, and, and also still love that interesting mechanic with the defensive combat. And so we built swarm mode, um, which we showed at games gamescape where, you know, it's essentially a wave defense where you've got waves of enemies that change each through each wave and you have to sort of kill them in this arena type level. So the light and dark isn't as much of an issue. You can boost your character up really high um, and just basically see how long you can stay, stay alive. Um, but that was all born out of the fact that Rob really likes to play that style of game. Um, and I, I, I think it worked well still with our mechanics, and it made sense to build a second second mode. Um, and I really, really like local multiplayer games, so that, there was there that too. Um, right, and I think ultimately what will happen is the the wave mode will probably get incorporated into the story um, in one way or another. In fact, in some of the later, um, if you if you go a little deeper in the story level, you will get a more arcade experience. So, but you won't necessarily have waves of enemies, but, you know, it could be that we have waves of enemies without us saying, you know, here comes a wave, you know what I mean? So we can, we can perfect that arcade experience as part of maybe one whole level that you would drop down to where you drop down to this level and it's just like, just infested with enemies that are coming at you and you have to, you know, get rid of them all before you can continue. You know, it's like a boss level kind of thing. So um, I also like both. I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, bothering with the story part, you know, if I didn't really love that part too. But um, I think 
I was looking for something, you know, a little more, you know, to the, the action side of things. Um, and I, like I said, I think we'll end up putting both together and then may not have that arcade mode unless we're doing like local multiplayer uh, is what I'm kind of guessing. Okay. So let me ask, uh, which one of you is better at Canary? Me, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we haven't actually... No, we've never better... actually tested this. So uh, we, that's easy enough to do. We could totally have a competition. <laughs> uh, it, it's not really fair, I don't think, because... I don't know what you mean. Because in the story <laughs> mode, you, you design the levels. So it's like, I've got to go explore the levels and figure out where everything is. You already know where everything is, okay? So given enough, given enough time, I think I could still kick your ass, so... I am very competitive, so <laughs> I couldn't tell. Yeah, exactly. Before we go, uh, is there anything you guys would like to plug? Um, yeah, just we're, you guys. Uh, if anyone's uh, wants to check out Canary, we're going to be releasing the Gamescape demo within a few weeks from um, our, our like social outlets. We're on Facebook. You can check us out. Um, Facebook.com slash Pixelbot Games. You can uh, check out our game page, which is canarygame.com, um, as well as we have a subreddit uh, at uh, Canary Game as well. And we're on Twitter, Pixelbot Games. I think that's all of the, the social avenues. Yeah. I think you hit them all. So. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, great having both of you. Yeah, thank you so much for, yeah, uh, for taking nice. time to talk to us. And thanks for checking out our game winner at Gamescape. Yeah, my pleasure. This discussion of Canary reflected on two aspects of the Fireman. First, Canary's limited resources force the player to explore under pressure, much like exploration in the Fireman forces players to explore with limited time. We talked about that back in episode 34. Additionally, players must use scarce space wisely while fighting enemies in Canary, similar to combat in the Fireman, where enemies are anxious to box you in. We covered that back in episode 33. Thanks for listening. Next time, two interviews with dev teams where we flesh out both game design and development team dynamics. See you then. If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com.